this isn't even a recipe for a happy life. I think that when you spend your whole life kind of avoiding the issue, trying to convince yourself that just around the corner, like next week or next month, you're going to have everything in working order and then you're going to be able to like be on top of everything. You're going to be able to handle all the obligations that come at you, make time for all the things that matter to you. Like you never get there. And there's something deeply sort of relaxing and liberating about sort of dropping back down into the truth that being finite means you're going to have to choose between things. You're not going to be on top of everything. You're going to probably fail to enact all sorts of ambitions you might have had. And the more that you can sort of own that, the more time and energy and attention you have to focus on a few things that you really care about and get the most out of them. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. Hope you're doing well today. I've got a great conversation to share with you from Oliver Berkman, the former columnist from The Guardian, has a new book out. It's called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which Adam Grant calls the most important book ever written about time management. How are you doing with your time? Are you spending your days well? Are you aware that you have 4,000 weeks or thereabout? Maybe you have 2,000 weeks. Maybe you have 8,672 weeks of your life to manage. Are you aware that every day is, is an exercise in opportunity cost? Consciously or subconsciously, you're deciding what your life is all about when you choose which things to focus on every single day. And that's what Oliver writes about in this new book. So 4,000 weeks is about 80 years, and let's call that about the approximate lifespan or life expectancy of a newborn child today. And if you've made it to your 40s or 50s, the actuarial tables would say that you're going to make it to 75 to 85 or 90, barring unforeseen circumstances, which, by the way, are totally foreseeable if you allow yourself to go, yeah, that could happen. Crazy stuff could happen. Happens all the time. Anyway, let's just say that you've got, on average, 4,000 weeks to spend Oliver, in this new book, makes the argument that abandoning the illusion that we can or should try to get everything done is the key to leading our most meaningful life. In other words, the attempt to try to get everything done leaves us miserable, unsatisfied, and isolated. And so one of the keys to productivity, which is even, I think, a poorly chosen word by me here— that we shouldn't be thinking about life as being an exercise in productivity, that we should be thinking about how do we get the most out of life? How do we get the most meaning out of life? How do we get the most happiness out of life? And Oliver's got a formula for that. Part of it, he says, is to put your existence into the context of eternity in the infinite size of the universe. And when you do so, you realize that all the plans we make, all the ideas we have in our head, all our goals are anti-mortality exercises that we're putting ourselves through to delude ourselves into the state of mind that we matter or that we will create something that will make a dent in the universe or that will be our legacy. And fine, your kids are your legacy. Maybe their kids are their legacy. And maybe you'll be remembered for a generation or two. Or if you're extraordinary, you'll produce something, a body of work, a song, a prayer, something that might last you by a hundred or a couple hundred years. But for the most part, you know, we fill our days with activities that distract us from our own mortality. And Oliver argues that when we come face to face with that, we can start to decide to do things that matter. And since we've come to that awareness, why don't we just spend all our time doing things that we love and we know have meaning, like going for a long hike in the woods or going fishing with your friends or making dinner or breakfast for your children? Hey, not a bad question. Why aren't we doing more of that stuff? Fans of the podcast will recall that Oliver has appeared on Crazy Money before. On his first appearance, we discussed his book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking in which he lays out an equally counterintuitive argument saying that real happiness comes when we start to bring our expectations into line with what we should want in our lives. And we stop pursuing the things that don't bring us happiness. We'll have a much better outcome and spend our time doing the things that do bring us happiness. His writing and his attitude can be misinterpreted. And indeed, one loyal Crazy Money listener, Mark Widener, also a friend said, hey, let's go and talk about this because I think that I'm a pretty happy guy and I'm optimistic and I don't think that that's a bad thing. And we had a long walk and we had a great conversation. And I agree with Mark 
that being positive and being optimistic is a good thing. These are not mutually exclusive attitudes. These are not mutually exclusive philosophies. Well, Oliver says, hey, look, when you stop worrying about being famous, when you stop worrying about being rich, you have the opportunity to pursue meaning. And that doesn't mean you're a, a curmudgeon. It doesn't mean that you're a an Eeyore, to use a Winnie the Pooh reference. It means that you know, you know what you are trying to pursue in life and that that pursuit is enough and that you don't have to prescribe to the shiny, happy people philosophy that R.E.M. sang about back in the day. Love Mark Widener's positivity. I love Oliver Berkman's writing. I loved this conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. This, friends, is my conversation with Oliver Berkman. Oliver Berkman, welcome back to Crazy Money. Thanks very much for asking me. I feel like Terry Gross when I say that. I feel like I've been on the air for 40 years now, and you know these are old friends, but it's nice to see you again. <laughs> when I finished writing my Guardian column last year, somebody, I've been doing it weekly for more than a decade, somebody got in touch to say they'd grown up with my writing and it was meant as a compliment, but mm. I just made me feel so old. <laughs> well, the youngest Crazy Money listener has not grown up with Crazy Money yet, but we're all growing up together in middle age. We're all trying to, right. and that's kind of the theme of a lot of your writing, right? It's a lot of it is, is how do we become better people? How do we become more evolved human beings? And the title of the new book is 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. Your opening statement is this. In the long run, we're all dead. And I was like, there's the Oliver Berkman I've come to love. (laughs) Yeah, not an original quote. But yeah, yeah. This is a book about the fact that life is finite, which I think is not a depressing thought. But I'm always a a little concerned titling the book 4,000 Weeks, which is the average length of a, it's an 80-year lifespan approximately in weeks. I'm a little concerned that people might just figure that out and run away scared rather than <laughs> like purchasing the book and finding out that it's not a cause for despair. Well, you know, as I was Googling the title to go to your website or to see where the book was being sold or whatever, and I came across these calendars that people make, 4,000-week calendars, where you actually cross off or fill in the blanks of all the 4,000 weeks of your lives as you go. Right. That seems to be far more morbid than acknowledging it, than making the connection between our finite lives and time management. Right. And I think there's sort of two ways to go wrong with this. One is to sort of think that there's something incredibly terrifying and depressing about mortality, which I guess is not going wrong, because I think there is something terrifying and depressing. But there's a way of sort of metabolizing that that can become energizing. The other, and I'm also sort of at pains to steer clear of this, I think, is that kind of idea that you've got to incredibly stressfully go through life, seizing the day in an incredibly self-conscious way and making sure you go base jumping every single weekend, because otherwise (laughs) you're not really sucking the marrow out of life. And I don't think that's a fun way to be either, actually, to be so sort of panicky about the fact that you only live once that you can't relax. So I'm sort of trying to steer a path between those. I actually have a bit about, I'm a comedian, as you may or may not remember, and I've got heart disease. The most annoying thing when I told people I had it, they'd say, you've got to live every day as if it's your last. And it's like, (laughs) no, you don't. I don't need a squirrel suit. I don't need to go base jumping. (laughs) If we all know life is short, why shouldn't we try to make it perfect? The idea that I'm getting at here, I think, is that so much of our instinctive and culturally reinforced ways of relating to time, both in the context of like time management and productivity advice, which we can talk about if you want, but also just more generally, the purpose that it really serves is kind of enabling our delusion that we're limitless, that we're going to live forever, (laughs) that we don't have to make tough choices, rather than pushing us gently towards that discomforting but true state of affairs. And the thing I really want to try to convey is that this isn't even a recipe for a happy life. I think that when you spend your whole life kind of avoiding the issue, trying to convince yourself that just around the corner, like next week or next month, you're going to have everything in working order. And then you're going to be able to like be on top of everything. You're going to be able to handle all the obligations that come at you, make time for all the things that matter to you. Like you never get there. And there's something deeply sort of relaxing about actually and liberating about sort of dropping back down into the truth that being finite means you're going to have to choose between things you're not going to be on top of everything you're going to probably fail to enact all sorts of ambitions you might have had and the more that you can sort of own that the more time and energy and attention you have 
to focus on a few things that you really care about and get the most out of them. So it's like once you let that go, that kind of impossible quest, that's when you have like the focus and the the power, I think, to do the possible things, which is where life gets really meaningful and fun. One of the main points you come at a couple of different ways is what you just said, that the day will never arrive when you have everything under control. So we might as well stop trying and distracting ourselves from our own mortality and or imperfection by trying to get everything done. So you feel strongly that when you just let go of it and pick your path, your handful of things that you're going to concentrate on, you'll be better at the things that are actually more relevant to who you are as a human being. Right. And I want to be clear, like, it's a constant struggle for me, too. I haven't, like, achieved some perfect acceptance of my own mortality or anything like that. But I think that we are, I've got better at it. And we're misled because we live in this world of kind of effectively infinite inputs, right? There are an infinite, effectively, there are an infinite number of emails you could receive, demands that your boss could make if you're in that kind of a job, or business ideas you might want to pursue, exotic places you might want to travel, people you could at least potentially date if you're on an internet dating platform, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's all effectively infinite. And it's just simple math, right? If you're trying to sort of encompass uh, and find time for and get around to an infinite number of things when you're finite, like that can only be a recipe for anxiety and never quite getting to that point. So I think that what I'm, I suppose what I'm saying is that we already all are making hard choices in every moment, right? Every time you decide to spend an hour on anything, you're neglecting a million other things in order to do it. The difference is that, like, can you do that a bit more consciously? Can you accept that that is what we're all doing and see that, like, the real art of time management is not figuring out how to become perfectly optimized, but making the right choices about, like, what to neglect because neglecting things is a given. It's just baked into the situation, And I've found to the degree that there isn't something in the back of my mind thinking any day now, I'm going to get to all of these things. (laughs) Like that's just, it's such a weight off my shoulders to know that like, yeah, okay, this thing matters and this thing matters. And this other thing, it's not even just a matter of getting rid of the things that don't matter. It's a matter of choosing between things that all matter because there's just too much. So none of us is ever going to paint our masterpiece. Is that the idea? I'm not sure I want to say that. No, I think if what you mean by the masterpiece is the perfect thing that you're holding out for, then I think it's really useful to understand that like the baked in imperfection here means you might as well just get started with stuff because Mm. the sort of perfect thing doesn't exist in the world. But I also think from another interpretation of that phrase, you know, this is how to paint your masterpiece, right? To sort of come back down to earth, to enter into reality and to stop pursuing these kind of ways of organizing your time that are all just based on like tricking yourself into thinking that next week you're going to be on top of everything. I feel like we got very deep very quickly. Um, well, I, I, blame, I blame your questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'll accept that responsibility. Tell me why you like walking on the English countryside so much. One of the challenges of using time well is that if you really focus too much on the idea of using time well you end up like instrumentalizing every minute of the day, right? So everything you're doing, you do for the purposes of something else. And if you're someone with a history of being a productivity geek like I am, this becomes a real serious issue with work, right? Because everything, you're doing it to get through it, to get on top of all your lists, la, 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 la. It's like the value of the work is never right there. It's for something in the future. And this has happened to leisure in a big way, I think especially in the last few decades, right, that it doesn't quite feel okay to be using your leisure time in a way that isn't improving you in some way. But then again, if you overinvest in that, you're always, you're never quite enjoying yourself. You're always on a path to enjoying yourself. And hiking, to come back to your question, is a good example of what the philosopher Kieran Setia, who I quote in the book, calls an atelic activity. It's something that like, you can only really do it for itself. I mean, there's some fitness benefits and maybe you're, I don't know, collecting butterflies or something. But the real reason to go on a hike, as I yeah, love to do in the northern English countryside in the Yorkshire Dales and the North York Moors, is to go on the hike. And if you really wanted to do it most efficiently, 
which were or in a sort of optimized way, you would just never go because <laughs> well, you start at the beginning and you go around in a loop or you sometimes like get to a certain point and turn back. Well, there's no point in any of that except in itself. And I think that's probably true on some level of all hobbies. It seems a little bit embarrassing in this day and age to admit to having or wanting to have a hobby. And I think that's got something to do with the fact that it doesn't serve a purpose outside itself. Whereas, as I say in the book, if you call your hobby a side hustle and you're trying to make money out of it, that's super cool and fashionable. But we need more of this atelic hobby stuff just because if you don't have any of it in life, then your life is never for now, right? It's always for some time in the future. I mean, you know that problem. A good friend of mine recently referred to this podcast as a hobby, and I was offended. <laughs> I was offended, Oliver. I said, I work very hard at this. I take this very seriously. All right. And then I thought about it. I was like, okay, it's not profitable. It's not making me famous. I do it for the love of it, and I do it right. for the meaning of the conversations, which other people get, not millions of people, but hundreds, maybe thousands mm -hmm. of people get some value out of. So why do I take offense at the word hobby? What's wrong with that word? What should it be called? Well, I mean, yeah, we need to rehabilitate that word hobby and see that it's kind of subversive, I think, in this day and age to pursue one. There's sort of two layers of this going on, right? One part of it is straightforwardly economic. We're so conditioned, I think, by the system that we live in that if it's not primarily to make money, it has a kind of a stigma attached. But it goes beyond that, as I say, to just the idea that it's got to have some future purpose. It's got to be building up to something. It's got to all have its point of fruition, completion in the future. And, you know, of course, we do that stuff all the time. And if I didn't have that attitude towards writing a book, I'd never get the book written. It, right. It, but if you only have it in your life, then you're sort of building up to, like, what? A minute on your deathbed when you get to look back and say, I did all the right stuff, but then you've missed your life. So there's a difference between taking a walk on the beautiful countryside and training for an Ironman, right? Right. So where's the line and how do you decide what to do every day? If, <laughs> if on the one hand, we always live for some future better time, we miss the present and we don't have a life. On the other hand, if we never plan for the present, we likely won't make too much of our time, you know? Right. So how do you decide what to do every day? I mean, I don't think I've got a brilliant answer otherwise, oh, other than that you need, you need both. <laughs> you need both. And you probably have a good sense. I think most people do have a good sense of whether their life is out of whack in one direction or the other. And I think it's just a question, you know, to get a little bit sort of Jungian and depth psychology about it, which I, I also do in the book. I think it's a question of sort of listening to your insides, right? I think people know when they're not when they don't think that what they're mainly doing with their lives is meaningful. And it can be very strange. Like they can be doing jobs that many of us might look down on, but if they're doing them for a reason that matters to them deeply, like if they're saying like, look, my situation in life is that I got to do this crappy job. If I want to support my kids, the meaning is there because there's a why. I think that it's a question of isolating what the things are that sometimes lead to that lack of meaning. And for sort of, driven, high-achieving people like I've always thought of myself as and like Kieran Satia, who writes about this in a very sort of personal way as well, thinks of himself as, the problem is likely not to be too much time spent not working on any long-term projects and interesting creations. The problem is likely to be never stopping the sort of instrumental stuff in favor of things that give their value in the moment. You have a quote from Nietzsche in the book where you say, haste is universal because everyone is in flight from himself. Yeah, I love that. I find that to be true. And I think as I've reflected over the past couple of years doing the podcast, I, to some degree, believe that my quest for achievement has been just that, has been, if I see myself getting the right third party accolades, then I know I'm doing okay. And mm -hmm. the way I do that is by keeping myself busy and always striving for the next rung of the ladder. And as I reflect on it, I kind of think, well, that's probably just because I wasn't taking the time to live every day. Are we distracting ourselves? Yeah, I said, but I think, you know, the thing that is important in that Nietzsche quote is like, haste is universal. This is nothing to be ashamed of because there's something sort of deeply baked in. I don't think it's shameful. And, you know, there's times in life where, you know, I did need to strive for the next level. I'm, I've, right. I have the luxury of being able to be a little bit more contemplative today because I don't have to make my rent for next month. 
Right. You know, I think that there is a sort of basic question that we can all do with asking ourselves, which is something like, what things am I doing in my life that I'm mainly doing so that I don't have to feel certain feelings that I <laughs> believe would be kind of catastrophic for me to have to feel? And I think that's what Nietzsche is getting at. I think, I think it's what Heidegger is getting at, although Heidegger is famously impenetrable. So, you know, I don't claim <laughs> to have nailed what he's saying. But this notion that what it all comes down to at the end is we are these finite beings with brains and minds capable of infinite imaginings. And it makes us really uncomfortable to sort of accept that like, this is it, that life isn't a dress rehearsal, that we can only do so much, that we don't know how the future is going to unfold, that we're sort of vulnerable to events at every moment, like anything could happen at any moment. It's all kind of yucky and claustrophobic in a way. And so, yeah, we do all sorts of things to sort of not feel that. And some of it is stuff like you're working on a writing project and just to speak from experience, you're sure. working on a writing project and it's like hard and you don't know that you're up to it. So it's way more fun to be on Twitter because the, f the feeling of being on Twitter is this kind of limitless, I can just float through infinity doing what I want and present being who I want and la la la. But I think it's also there in things like commitment phobia, something that I have historical experience of, not, not <laughs> as a day, but, you know, you know, where if you sort of constantly feel like you're keeping your options open and never making the leap into a relationship in a, in a deep way, it's like you're sort of floating above this situation of being pinned down to reality. It's like you're sort of, you're at one remove in a kind of quasi kind of godlike state or something. It doesn't work because you're actually not. It's just in your head. But so I think pretty much everything is, I think I've probably got a grand theory of humanity here that like pretty much all bad things that ever happen are people trying to, trying to not feel the truth of the situation that they're in. <laughs> you're trying to connect sort of the mundane or the quotidian to the infinite, right? And, right. and our desire that we believe that we each have cosmic significance and that desire to write a book that is going to make me famous and world-renowned or to find that, you know, to quote Jerry Maguire, that, that relationship that completes me is utter foolishness, right? Like, it's okay to write a book if what you're writing has value in and of itself. And love for love's sake is great, but don't expect too much from either of those things. It's tricky to talk about because I kind of, again, it depends on what you mean by a relationship that completes you, right? I mean, I don't want to, I really don't want to be the person saying like, lower your expectations and just expect to have a kind of mediocre, crappy life. But what I do think you should do is not have expectations that are in principle kind of impossible to meet and to expect of a relationship partner that they be something more than another flawed human being. Right. That's, that's craziness. But right. that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah. And I read something not long ago that the number one reason people get divorced is unrealistic expectations about what it's right. going to be. And we talked in our last conversation, talking about your book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, a book I loved, and everybody should go and read it if they haven't read it already. <laughs> it's that high expectations are really the things that make us unhappy and that having a realistic expectation of what life presents to us is going to lead us to live a better, more content life. Right. And not just a sort of zoned out, like one step removed life, but a more involved and committed life, right? I mean, my experience so far anyway, is that you can have a much deeper and more fulfilling kind of relationship or a relationship with your work or whatever you're talking about to the extent that you're not relying on it to provide something that is outside the bounds of possibility. Alain de Botton, the philosopher and writer, has this great like riff, and he wrote a New York Times piece about it, about uh, why you will marry the wrong person, which is kind <laughs> of, which is kind of, I kind of love because it's about how, you know, we have all this kind of mess of different motivations. We're looking to recreate certain things from missing from our childhood, or we're projecting all the things we aren't in touch with in ourselves onto somebody else. But the universality of it, is kind of great because it just means everyone's in the same boat. And if you can sort of stick with someone and, and both be committed to working through this kind of ridiculous predicament of being a human, that's the best thing that there is. So it is lowering your expectations, but it's lowering them kind of into 
into reality. And real happiness is obviously worth infinitely more than fake hasn't arrived yet, might arrive one day, unreal happiness. So, right. Yeah. So here's something I wrote down, which maybe it captures the spirit, maybe it doesn't. Okay. The universe doesn't necessarily care about me, but my kids do. My <laughs> right. wife does. I have the potential to help my neighbor. And if I focus my time on these things, that I'll actually be in a better position than if I were to try to operate as if I have cosmic significance. Right. I quote in a book a philosopher called Ido Landau, who's written a book, Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World. And he talks about how we set these very bizarre standards for what counts as a meaningful life that pretty much by definition rules out 99% of the things that we can do. TikTok, et cetera, Instagram, yeah, yeah. everything. <laughs> right, right. I mean, if your goal is to be remembered by history, you know, thousands of years hence or something like that, if you've got to change the world in the sense that we normally mean by that phrase, you're automatically saying that thousands of things that we obviously know are meaningful don't count because they're not going to have that effect. And it's not that you can't invent amazing things and make a big splash and win elected office or invent extraordinary devices or software or whatever. You know, it's not that these things aren't part of that. It's that this kind of definition of meaning rules out so many of the things that give texture and substance to our lives. It's just a kind of, it's a really odd one to go around burdened with because it just means that all these things to do with personal relationships and sort of steadily doing some fairly useful work that makes a difference to a few people. I'm in this right now with this book, actually, because like I write this newsletter and I write articles and I write this book. And like the thing I love the most about the work that I do is when you get one-to-one responses from individual people who've been like seriously, significantly moved or affected. I want to reach out about something I've written. Just a person, right? It's not actually a quest for modern fame, right? There isn't a part of me when I think about it consciously that wants to be, I don't know, Kanye West or something, right? Or the president. But we've set this strange, we've got this strange idea now so that if you're doing anything with a little bit of a public profile, like so many of us are in journalism, podcasting, book writing, whatever, you sort of find yourself slipping into this mindset sometimes. Like what you're trying to do is scramble up that pyramid that only like five people can ever be at the pinnacle of. When I stop to think about it, it's like, I don't want to be at the top of that pinnacle. It'll be, it'll be total hell. I mean, it's certainly out of the realm of possibility that I would get to that level of fame, I think, but I also think it would be awful. And it wouldn't be the thing that I find most meaningful about the work that I do. So you've got to sort of be careful not to borrow other people's or the culture's definition of a meaningful life and let it sort of take you too far away from what would be a meaningful life for you? And being aware of what you think will be a meaningful life, because we think one thing, which sometimes isn't exactly what contributes to meaningful life, but you actually tried this, right? You tried to align the hours of your day with your values. Oh, I've tried every one of these techniques, right? Where you're sort of like, <laughs> there are some crazy books out there. These are books that say, it always says like, there's always like one page at the beginning of one of these kind of life planning books. It says like, first of all, figure out your core values. Okay, now, and you're like, hang on. How do I figure out my core values? What the heck does that mean? But then, yes, if you sort of think you've figured out your core values, you then try and figure out all the different ways this week and then this day and then this hour that you're going to, you quickly go insane. But I think it's an example of a broader thing that I write a bit about, which is this idea, this kind of, well, it's time management, right? It's the idea that your relationship to time is something like it's a thing and you can kind of manipulate and direct it and that this is going to lead to the most satisfying life. But there's something really weird about that idea, isn't there? Because time, as many people have observed, like it can't be managed. It just passes and you get one moment of it at a time and you can't put it aside for later. It's not like money in that respect. Actually, one of the most interesting parts of putting this book together was sort of doing the research to discover how many points in history and then maybe even also some kind of certain indigenous communities today, this whole notion of time didn't apply, right? This idea that our time is something that we have to use in a certain way, or that is kind of weighing down on us or running out, or we might be wasting it or, or stewarding it well. That whole idea, as opposed to just time being the, the medium in which life flows, like none of these questions would have made any sense to like a 
early medieval English peasant, for example. Like, it just would not have made any sense to talk about. But that person's life was nothing but obligation. That's one way of thinking of it. I mean, it's a bad example in one sense, which is that that person's life was certainly terrible in many ways, right? (laughs) I mean... um, I wasn't using those as synonyms, but yeah. Right, but no, and well, actually, it's a really interesting point there, right? I mean, yes, putting aside the ways in which a medieval English peasant just had a terrible life, there was another sense in which that life was was structured by obligation, which was that, you know, if you're a farmer, the cows need milking when they need milking and the crops need harvesting when they need harvesting, right? The tasks of life offer no scope for like, oh, I don't know, like, let's do all the milking for the month today so that we can get it out of the way and be more optimized and efficient. Like, it's just not going to happen. You're, you're yoked to reality in a different way, as you would be like, even if it wasn't kind of massively exploited by the feudal lords and suffering from diseases where their limbs fell off all the time and everything. So it's just a, it's just a sort of, I certainly don't think that we should go back to any aspect of the lifestyle of medieval peasants, but I think there is something to learn from this. You know, there is something to learn from that idea of not constantly trying to sort of back out of reality and then manipulate it, but what it feels like to just acknowledge that you just are in it. And it happens for us sometimes, you know, and I write and I always think about the experience of being a parent of a newborn, which I'm not anymore, but I was a few years ago. That's another example. I suspect it was far more true for my wife even than it was for me, but where you're so governed by the rhythms, kid wakes up, the kid needs feeding, the kid needs a diaper changing. Something stressful about time is taken out of the equation there. Even though the circumstances can be very stressful because like, you just had a kid and you don't know what the hell you're doing and how do you keep it alive. But there's something is taken away, which is this kind of weighty oblig- thing that sits on a lot of our shoulders, I think, in the modern world of sort of like, how should I use my time best? How should I structure my day? What order should I do things in? What's my priority here? Am I living a meaningful life? There's something incredibly liberating about those moments when you're just like, no choice. <laughs> and you've got an anecdote of the book about a woman who kind of went back to nature and tried to live a more simple life. So should we all be pulling like a Thoreau on a cul-de-sac kind of life? Should, we, <laughs> should I be churning my own butter? Would I right. find life to be more satisfying? And of course, we know that Thoreau actually had someone, he took his laundry back into town or something and like had a, <laughs> went back to his mother's house on a regular basis. No, I don't think it's about the specific lifestyle you choose, but the very interesting thing about the person you're mentioning there, Sylvia Kiesmat, who's a Bible scholar and an agriculturalist, that's an example of a life I argue, and because she argues it, uh, rejecting convenience as a kind of thing to organize your life around. So it's not that it's better to like live rurally or do farm type things instead of web development type things. But it is that if you just sort of go with the flow of our cultures drift towards ever more convenient technologies and lifestyles and et cetera, et cetera, you know, the way everything moves online because it's faster and more efficient, the way you can sort of order food from your phone without having any interaction with a human being, let alone cooking the food. If, if you just go with this flow somebody else is making the decision for you about what a meaningful life is, right? Because it's basically Silicon Valley deciding, well, these are the things we can get rid of and smooth out. And these are the things that people really want. And we tend to collaborate with it because actually, you know, when you're just really hungry, you do want to press a button and get some food delivered to your door. But you take a step back and you realize that actually, you know, little interactions with other human beings when you go out to get food or the things that you get from chopping vegetables and choosing vegetables in the supermarket and making things like we don't want them in that moment when we're hungry and just want the quickest thing, but we do really benefit from them. So I think you could totally internalize that perspective and absolutely remain living in a city, working with computers and not milking your own cows or whatever. But it's just that sort of conscious stepping back of like, how far am I being guided by forces that are not don't have my best interests at heart into like what constitutes a well-organized day why is it better organized for me to get my food instantaneously at the push of a button instead of cooking it well maybe for you it is but maybe it isn't you write that when you render a process more convenient you drain it of its meaning 
So that's why a handwritten letter is more satisfying than a text or a meal cooked with friends has more depth to it than uh, ordering a pizza by yourself. There seems to be this overlap between things that feel a bit like the work involved, the chore, the effort, and the sense that it really mattered. You know, I live in the US and have lots of family in the UK, and I have traditionally been very bad at remembering their to mark their birthdays on time. And one of the things you end up doing in those situations is you use these services where you go online and you pick a photo or you upload a photo and you put a funny message and it prints a card and sends it locally from, from the UK and it gets there on time. And I suppose it's better than nothing, but like, I think everyone in that process is aware <laughs> that something has been missed because, and they say it's a thought that counts. Well, I had the thought, right. but no, I think what counts in that situation is like that you put in some time to going and buying a card and thinking of it in time and, and writing in it with a pen and or sending a gift, whatever. But I think convenience sort of speaks to our worst selves and it leads us into this situation where like you end up doing what's most convenient instead of what you would be happiest to have done. The best part of that is that on January 1st of any given year, you could fill out all of those birthday cards. <laughs> right. You right. can't pre-milk a cow, but you can preload birthday cards for the year for all of your family. And actually, I want to start a service now. Does, does this exist where you could then just deliver all those cards to, to one company who would then like dispatch them through the year at exactly the I, right time? Theoretically, you could do it decades in yeah. advance. I mean, yeah. you'd probably overpay for people who died early. You'd probably offend the relatives of those people, wouldn't you, when, when the card arrived? All right, speaking of offense, <laughs> there was one issue in the book that I take particular umbrage at, which is the fact that you seem to argue that it's pointless to get to the airport early, which is a middle-aged man is one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I come from, like, childhood trauma on this issue because I come from a family of compulsive planners who... Um, you know, leave like multiple hours to get to the airport and get to the railway station. They end up like hanging around for hours because they left so much slack. I mean, look, do it if you want, but I think that what I'm, what, I think what I'm criticizing. You're on, in, you're on my wife's side. You're on my, you realize this is, this is affecting I mean, my marriage. I'm, here. I'm actually on your side. Like I'm, I'm fighting the compulsive planning tendency in myself. Right. So like, you know, I am not that person. I, I'm in a sort of inner process of, struggling with that person but the point i'm sort of making is we people who want to sort of be incredibly cautious and plan everything out and make sure everything works we're trying to achieve something that you can't actually ever achieve which is reassurance that the future will unfold in the way that you think you need it to so you'll notice i think maybe you'll tell me i'm wrong but like you'll notice that like the mindset of leaving lots of hours to go to the airport doesn't actually go along with then like totally relaxing and being happy. It's kind of a, you sort of stay on edge. And the reason you stay on edge, I argue is because, well, firstly, you can't be certain that you're leaving enough time to get to the airport. Right. I mean, you could leave six hours to do a one hour journey and something <laughs> could still get in the way. And then secondly, then you've just got whether the flight leaves on time to worry about. And then you've got whether the flight arrives on time for your onward connection to worry about. Right? The time just keeps on going. So the future like doesn't stop. And so you can't ever get the grip on it that I think planning is often an attempt to get. And so I think it's a recipe for sort of systematically a kind of recipe for constant anxiety because you're trying and trying and failing and failing to control something that nobody can control, which is the future that hasn't happened yet. So no better example of our inability to control our environment than what we've all gone through in the past, oh, 16 or so months. What lessons from the pandemic and quarantine did you work into this book? Well, it's funny because I've been writing the book since long before quarantine and then um, lockdown happened. And honestly, I think the reason I brought this book to completion in lockdown was not because I had more time. Various people claimed people have more time in lockdown, but it wasn't people with small kids. <laughs> but it was because I was like, the world publishing industry is going to collapse. I need to get this thing out before it happens. Actually, as it happens, book publishing has been a success story of the pandemic, but we didn't know that at the beginning. So I had a file lit under my backside and finished it when I might otherwise not have done. 
I think what's so interesting about the experience of the pandemic is that it has sort of created for so many people certainly a sense of like time being unmoored and out of control and is it dragging or is it racing no one's people's landmarks in time have all gone so they get very confused and and distressed but also this kind of feeling of how it sort of leads us to see that the, the ways we'd been spending our time prior to lockdown are not all totally given things that we just have to accept i don't mean i'm not one of these people who thinks that lockdown was like a net good and we should all like carry on living in that way as long as possible but people stopped commuting people stopped staying in their office till 6 30 at night to show that they were there at their desks and found that they could actually do their jobs without that people found themselves only able if they were at home to sort of do gardening or baking bread was another thing that everyone suddenly started doing until all the yeast supplies ran out people did report like strange sort of a sense of kind of bittersweet gratitude right that they were sort of you start to see what matters. And obviously that's partly because a very large number of people are dying. And so the fragility of life is incredibly obvious as well. But like, you know, at least for the beginning bit, the time when we were all applauding emergency workers on our doorsteps at 7pm in New York City was really moving. And it was really kind of like, oh, this is a good way to spend your time. I mean, not all these things carried on being exactly the same, but I think it's just a real sort of bringing into focus of how we're spending our time. And if you are someone who thinks all I want to do is get back to the way life was exactly the same before the, the pandemic, then fine. But there's an opportunity to be conscious and to say, like, maybe that isn't the thing for me. And we see it, right? There's many, many reports, both of sort of relatively upper income, younger people leaving jobs and going off around the world because you only live once. And then also of restaurants finding it harder and harder to recruit people, perhaps partly because those restaurant workers are just like, oh, maybe I'm not going to do this now. If, if the whole world is so insecure, maybe I'm not going to pursue this particular kind of insecure employment if there's no particular benefit to doing so. So there's this kind of moment of possibility that we could capitalize on. To what degree do you think it's that the quarantine gave us the excuse to not do things we didn't want to do? And to what degree do you think it's people actually becoming more aware of their own mortality? That's funny. I guess it's both. I guess I almost want to say those are the same the same thing because the idea that you might want to spend your time differently is sort of inextricably linked to your mortality, right? Because if you live forever, it would just wouldn't matter. Like I mean, I think it would be hell to live forever for various reasons, but if you did, I could work in an office in downtown Manhattan for a couple of centuries and then live on the top <laughs> of a mountain in the Himalayas for a couple of centuries. There'd be no there'd be no rush. You'd try all these lives. So I think that these two things are connected. So I think, for example, one thing that happened in lockdown for people who had been used to busy social lives before was the sort of temporary end of FOMO, right? You're just like, there's nothing to miss out on. So you don't feel that you're missing out on it. And that might, if you sort of reflect on that, that might cause you to understand, just to get onto another of my soapbox points, that like FOMO is a really weird thing to feel because you're always missing out on almost everything by definition. And so maybe you can go back into the world where where there is FOMO with less of it yourself because you see the truth of the situation now, which is obviously there are a thousand things happening in a big city on any evening that you could be at but aren't. And maybe that's fine. Yeah. All right, a couple more questions and we'll wrap it up. If you knew for sure that you were going to die tomorrow, how would you spend your day? Oh, God. That's a wild question. Well, it's such a cliche, though, but yeah. like, have you thought about, yeah. like, truly, if you were going to die, how would you do it? What would you do? I sort of feel torn between the most elevating and important activities and then just, like, there's various people I wouldn't mind telling, telling them what I thought of them. <laughs> <laughs> you mean expressing your gratitude to your friends? Right, exactly, loved ones? Yeah. Is that what Because I mean, that's what I heard to answer, you that, to answer that question incredibly seriously to the point that I find it very upsetting, I, I'm sure I would just want to spend the time with my closest loved ones. I can't imagine that you would want to do, that anyone would ultimately want to do anything other than that. And I think that, but I also think from having read people's accounts and spoken to people's accounts of being in some equivalent to that situation, not quite, you know, the next day, that you might also find that kind of just everything was suffused with, it wouldn't be joy, I don't think. I think it would be much worse than that but a kind of vividness that is like at some point the fact that we're here is kind of more 
amazing than the question of exactly what we're doing while we're here. And so it might be that sort of anything would have that that level of meaning just because it's like, just occasionally you glimpse this, you know, even in happier times, right? You're sort of like, hang on, being on the planet is just a mind-bendingly slim chance and a sort of extraordinary, inexplicable thing. And nobody knows how to explain consciousness. And it's all just so weird and amazing. It's just as weird as amazing and as amazing if I'm stuck in a traffic jam as if I'm in some particularly beautiful surroundings or something. Base jumping in the Dolomites. Right, exactly. So speaking of that very issue, I'm going to put a link to Monty Python's The Galaxy Song from The Meaning of Life in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> Do you recall the song? Dimly. I mean, I know The Meaning of Life. I'm trying to think, um, what's The Galaxy Song? Remind the me. The Galaxy Song. Hang on a second. got to go to it while we're talking about it. Um, <laughs> so The Galaxy Song, remember The Meaning of Life is they're trying to explain what life is all about and how tragic it is and how short it is and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> And the Galaxy song, Mr. Wonderful, pops out on this woman. And whatever life gets you down, Mrs. Brown, and things seem hard or tough, and people are stupid, obnoxious, or doffed, and you feel like you've had quite enough, just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 yes. miles per hour. You remember the song? Right. Yeah, I do know. Yeah. <laughs> that's orbiting at 19 miles a second, so it's reckoned <laughs> a sun that is the source of all our power. And he goes on with all these, just like the yeah. vastness of the universe that is expanding and expanding. So, so remember how amazingly unlikely is your birth and pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space because there's bugger all down here. Yes, yes, I didn't know that. Anyway, sorry to take such a diversion there, but like... No, it's not a diversion. It's exactly the point. I kind of wish I put it in the book. (laughs) Well, I'll put a link uh, to it in the show notes along with a link to your website because I know our listeners want to find out more about you, sign up for your newsletter. And I want to finish up on our last question. Do you feel rich? On my bad days, I feel like nothing would ever satisfy the sort of insecurity and desire for more, right? I feel like you could never financially feel rich enough because all the pressures are towards the idea that you need more and you need more and you need more. But on my good days, which I think are increasingly frequent, I can see the absurdity of that. And I can see just to not have any absolutely massive problems right now in this moment is just incredible that's just amazing that's just absolutely brilliant and i i I like how could you want anything more well hopefully through your writing and contemplation of the book that all of our listeners are going to go out and get four thousand (laughs) four thousand weeks time management for mortals by my guest oliver berkman that we will all have the opportunity to be a little bit more aware of how special each of those moments is oliver thank you for joining once again great to see you thank you so much for asking i had a great time 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals is out today, August 10th, 2021. Get your copy at the link in the show notes. Also sign up for Oliver's newsletter. His writing is meaningful to me. I find him a good reminder of the things that we should be focusing on in life. And he makes it fun and funny if you like bald, dry-humored people. And if you're listening to this podcast, you must like that. All right, let's get to the takeaways. You're not only the sum of everything you do, you're also the sum of everything you don't do. Opportunity cost is a huge theme in this book, and he talks about the joy of missing out. Think about the things that would improve your life if you missed out on them, like toxic relationships. Can you choose not to participate in them? Can you choose not to waste your days on social media? Of course, I spend a little bit of time on social media, and Facebook has been good for me in the net. But I think I could be spending a lot less time, all of us probably could, looking for acknowledgement of our life on social media. It is funny. I think that there's an old lyric in a Counting Crows song. I'm waiting for the telephone to tell me I'm alive. My God, if social media isn't that, I don't know what is. And along those lines, you can also choose not to engage in outrage as your default modus operandi, operandi, your MO, you know, however you pronounce it. Outrage and social media-fueled outrage is a way that I think a lot of us prove that we're alive. We get that hit, that fix when other people acknowledge our point of view that makes us feel alive and makes us feel as if we can make some dent in the universe with our opinion. And the fact of the matter is, eh, probably won't. So think about the things you don't do or you shouldn't be doing and how opting not to participate in those would make your life not just more productive, but happier as well. 
Number two, what's your version of Oliver's hike? What do you do for the sheer relaxing benefits? And are you spending enough time on that part of your life? Are you giving yourself permission to engage in activities that don't have a goal? To B, what's your version of this podcast? What kind of work would you do for free? Have you decided what this is for you? You know, and a lot of us, I know there's some young people listening to the show, but for a lot of us in our 40s and 50s, maybe older, this is the kind of work you should decide on doing when you retire or when the kids fly the coop or on your weekends. Find something, find an avocation that you do just for the love of it, just for the enrichment it gives your lives, for the knowledge it brings to your life and for the relationships it helps you build. Think about what's your hike, what's your podcast. Number three, Go deeper. This episode of the podcast reminded me a lot of the episode I did with Pete Davis, the author of Dedicated, whom I interviewed, I think, three or four weeks ago. He's a great young guy. He's got some great ideas about the benefits of diving deep and committing to relationships, to geographies, to organizations. I felt a lot of that same vibe here with Oliver, albeit in a very different tone, uh, reflective of the way each of those authors approaches the world respectively. But the one theme is clear, go deeper choose to go deep, choose to miss out on certain parts of your life. I've said before, and I'll say it again, when you commit to a certain way of living your life, like for me, trying to live a creative life, working on things like the podcast, the only thing you're guaranteed to get is the answer to the question, what would happen if I gave it my all? And that answer comes at the expense of what would happen if I gave another way of living my all? I'm not saying that like your creative work that has to come at the expense of parenthood or marriage or relationships or financial self-determination, but it does come at the expense of, hey, what would happen if I gave these whatever 40 hours a week I'm giving to this creative life to something else? And so you have to be okay letting go of that and saying, I care about this one thing the most, and I want to know the answer to the question, what would happen if I gave it my all? I think that's what Oliver is talking about here. Again, the book is 4,000 Weeks time management for mortals links to Oliver's website in the show notes. Also, Hey, follow us on Instagram. There's links to that in the show notes. If you want to chat, shoot me a note at paul at crazy I'd love to hear from you. Tell me what's going on in your life. Tell me guests you'd like to hear on the podcast coming up next week. The great Andrew Sullivan, one of America's most important journalists, He's got a, uh, I was going to say a memoir, but it's not a memoir. It's a collection of his writings from 1989 to 2021. It's coming out next week. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, Paul, Andrew Sullivan is more of a political writer. He is more of a social commentarist than he is a writer on money. But I think there's a huge connection between our individual happiness and the structure of political conversations in our world Today, I strongly encourage you, if you have not heard of Andrew Sullivan, and of course, if you have, to tune in next week, August 17th, when I chat with Andrew Sullivan. Until then, have a great week. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.